0: Hi, Rifki. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay. I am going to say this anyways before I introduce the episode, but just so everyone knows, I'm so excited to have you on because you've you're just you've done so many things. You're in residency now, you've written an incredible book, and also we're friends from real life because we went to Camp La Vie together. Throwback. And it's been so fun to connect with you about this. And I'm so excited to just get into everything that you have to share in terms of your expertise on women's health and preventative health and talking about your book. But before we even get into any of that, can you just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today?
1: Oh, for sure. No, thanks for having me when Lauren reached out. I was so excited just because we've really known each other forever. And it's been so fun to watch her grow and become this incredible champion um, for women everywhere. So Really excited to be here and excited You're to so t- sweet. It's my pleasure. Um and so a little bit about me. I grew up in the five towns in the suburbs of New York City. Um, my dad's a doctor. So that's ultimately what pushed me to become a doctor. But when I was in fifth grade, my mom was 34 at the time and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that's sort of what confirmed my commitment to women's health. It's really what propelled me to want to become an advocate for women because I saw my mom's doctors rally behind her. And I too wanted to do that for my patients one day. So, I knew I couldn't do that overnight, so ultimately I became involved in an organization called Share Sharsheret, and I really tried to volunteer and tried to raise breast cancer awareness, um, and in college, I brought Sharsheret to Barnard, which is an all-women's college in New York City, um, and we started Pink Day, and we really just wanted to bring women who may not necessarily had breast cancer, but who were high risk of breast cancer, and we'll talk more about what high risk for breast cancer means. Um, but these women were coming to to really speak about their experience to young men and women and show them that you may be high risk, but that doesn't mean you need to sit and wait for a cancer diagnosis. There is action that you can take. And it all starts by going to the doctor and speaking with your doctor and learning about your health history um, and really advocating for yourself, which I think Lauren really tries to uh, teach all of her, I guess, clients. Um, and So I wrote this book also that is called Secrets Are No Fun. And it's about my experience as the daughter of a woman grappling with breast cancer. Um, And from there, I've really gotten to connect with so many people. um, And it's brought me here.
0: It's amazing. And I have to say, because I actually read the book. And when you said you came out with this book, it's a kid's book, right? I was assuming, because I know also your son is young, right? He's one or two. Is he two yet? 18 months, yeah,
1: super close. Oh my
0: gosh. So I was thinking it was going to be one of these like 10-page books, maybe one or two sentences on a page, kind of like corduroy style. That's what I thought the book was. And I didn't want to wait to get it on Amazon because I just didn't want to deal with shipping and stuff. So I just downloaded it right away on the Kindle. And then I was like, wait a second, this book is over 100 pages. It's a chapter book. It's for middle schoolers. And I was blown away from the book. I couldn't believe, first of all, I couldn't believe you wrote a book. I don't know. You have to also tell us the process if it started when you were in college or in medical school, but you did the publishing process, at least while you were in medical school. And the book is actually amazing. And I'll say this. I was always a kid who loved reading. I feel like it was really a book that was written in a, ch- in, a, in a young middle schooler's voice. It didn't feel like a grown up trying to write a book for a kid. You're so honest in it. And there are a lot of things about it that are just very, very real. Like you're dealing with, you know, the darker or scarier parts of your mom's diagnosis, but also you have, you know, all the middle school things that kids really care about, like the spit competition at recess or the drama with the boys and the girls. And it was just so, it was so real. It was so well-written. So I recommend the book, not only to adults no, okay. and not no. only to children but really it's for everyone it was it was amazing to read it so yeah we want to hear more about about secrets are no fun tell us a little bit more about what the book is about
1: no thank you when uh, so many people ask me if it's a children's book meaning is it a, like a like a picture book. And I was like, no, this is a chapter book. It's middle grade. It's meant for ages 10 to 12. But really, it's meant for everybody. You can have people, the parents reading it, just so that they could see the perspective of younger children and really try to learn what their kid may be going through and also kids just to read it. Um, so that they could see what more to expect. I go through everything from diagnosis of breast cancer to the surgery, to chemotherapy, to recovery. Um, And I think a fun sequel would be what's what's beyond that, which is sort of what we're gonna speak about now. But my goal is to write a picture book one day. I really wanna do that. Oh my
0: gosh, that would be amazing. And let me also just add this because before I do what I do now, I was an elementary school English teacher and I taught first, second, third, sixth, fifth grade, depending on the years, so I'm not only just saying this as like, oh, I read the book and I thought it was great. I'm saying even from that teacher perspective, it should be literally in every classroom. I think also you never know what kids are going through. In your case, a lot of your friends didn't know that this was going on. And so I think just to teach empathy to kids, it's such it's such a great resource.
1: No, I think so too. I think what the book highlights is that you really never know what anyone is going through, um, whether they're 10 or they're 20, or they're 40, or they're 50, you really just never know. So trying to learn how to empathize with people, whether it's by reading a book, listening to a podcast, watching a TV show, the best time to watch TV probably is to learn how to empathize.
0: Um, I I think it's really important to have these resources. So true. And okay, so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about preventative medicine, because you're now in residency for internal medicine, right? Yes. Okay. So, so tell us a little bit and you just started. So first of all, congratulations and good luck, but tell us a little bit about the difference between preventative health. And I'm not sure what the right word is conventional health or more reactive health and why that's something that women need to be thinking about.
1: So I think that's a great question. I think what people don't realize is when you go to the primary care doctor, you're coming in with a list of of, I guess, complaints that you want to speak with your doctor about. Um, and I think you you mentioned it a lot, like what labs you should go in to speak with your doctor about getting. But what you guys don't know is that we also come in with a list of things that we want to talk to you about, especially if it's your first visit. Depending on your age, there's specific screening tests that you need to get, even starting at the age of 20. We do mainly like STI screening at that age anyways. Um, and we're always doing depression screening and alcohol screening, um, like when you're young, like between your 20s and 30s. But what, what we mainly as primary care doctors want to do is we want to learn so much about you, your whole familial health history, both on your mom's side and your dad's side, so we can get a better picture of how we can make a treatment plan. And I know a treatment plan sounds scary, but what's important about forming a relationship with your doctor is that we can make a preventative health care plan that works for you. Um, and tell me if you need me to explain what that means a little more.
0: Yeah, tell us more. Give us details.
1: So what I think for my experience, um, so my mom was 34 when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, so when I was 18, she decided it was time for me to go to the gynecologic oncologist, which is basically her gynie who specialized in people who have cancer. And she took me to her doctor because she just wanted me to be extra cautious. And why did she take me at 18? It's a little bit young, um, but that's what worked for me. And that's what I think a preventative healthcare plan, um, a personalized preventative treatment plan means that you want to do something that works for you. If you're someone who's extra nervous, go to the doctor, speak to them, make a plan. If you need to do, um, so for my case, I need to get breast screening. So I need to get ultrasounds. I need to get MRIs. um, I need to make sure that... um, since I'm high risk for breast cancer that I don't have breast cancer and that's how I can do it. Um, But at the same time, I'm in medical school. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I can't. You're an author. You're doing (laughs) a million things.
0: It's unreal.
1: Yeah, so you can't sorry. Go ahead. To the doctor, no, but it's true. You can't always be running to the doctor, and it's also expensive, and it's a lot of time. So, by forming that relationship and explaining all this to doctor, you can make this plan that takes into account everything in your life um, and really works for you, and doesn't really feel like, I guess, a stumbling block for what you want to do in the future.
0: Okay, I love that, and I know a lot of people are going to be thinking this while they're listening. Well, my doctor doesn't really seem like they're interested in that, or. I don't feel like I have enough time, or my questions kind of get dismissed. And this is something that is unfortunately really common for a lot of women's health issues, whether it has to do with their period health, whether it has to do with feeling tired or fatigued. I always tell people that's a red flag symptom. I know it seems like everyone's just tired all the time and it's normal, but it's not really normal. And, you know, it might just be that your doctor's dismissive of it. I know a lot of people have been told by their doctor just relax, just lose weight, you know, just do something that's not actually so easy to do and isn't really getting to the root cause. So do you have recommendations for how people can form those better relationships with their doctors or ask, maybe they're not asking the right questions or if there are other, are other questions they could be asking?
1: So I think it's really interesting um, because what we do is then if you'd come in, you're telling us that you're tired. We obviously order labs, right? Um, And then once the labs come back and they show, let's say they're showing that everything is normal, that's where the main issue comes in. It's like everything looks normal on our end. So what should you do? So I don't necessarily know if I have a recommendation in terms of how to interact with your doctor, um, because I think if your doctor isn't responding to you in a way that you like, then you probably should find a new doctor. Um, I will be available in three years, hopefully, um, 26, 20, 27. And this is really what I want to do. Um, but I do think things like what you talk about, I think meditation, I think acupuncture, I think, um, working on your diet. I think all of those things in combination with your doctor really can make the difference. Um, I know holistic medicine is a buzzword, but I do really believe in it entirely. Um, And I think a lot of different, um, adding a lot of these different components to make sure that your, I guess, mental health is coinciding with your physical health, I think that could really help because sometimes there may not be like a medical reason for why you're tired. It may be something that you need to look within yourself and say, okay, maybe I'm doing a little too much or, okay, maybe I need to add a little more meditation to my day. I think that could all make the difference. And I I bet you believe that too.
0: For sure. And I think a lot of times this, Anger gets unfairly placed on doctors when people are like, Well, my doctor didn't tell me about that, or they weren't there to guide me through it. And I don't necessarily think it's the role of your doctor to sit and teach you how to do meditation. Maybe they can mention it. Maybe that would have been helpful. But I think for a lot of people, what we're seeing now is women really want to learn more about their own health and their own bodies and how these different tools and things like nutrition and exercise can work to serve them. And then there are times and places where I think it's really important to be getting the lab work done and talking to a doctor. I know, especially I'll have people ask me, well, you know, I have X, Y, or Z issue. Do I, you know, can't I just solve it holistically? And sometimes the answer is like, no, thank God we have medicine and medical intervention might be necessary here. Um, So I think it's really great that you're just encouraging people and in the future with your patients, you're going to bring in both of those sides because I think they're really, really important.
1: No, for sure. And it's so funny. I was speaking with a patient the other day and she was that we were actually talking about breast cancer screening because her mother had breast cancer at a young age. And she told me she didn't have the gene, but she her mother had cancer for environmental factors. And I found that so interesting just because like the environment does have so much. Um, impact on us on a daily basis. I think for sure it totally impacts fertility. And I was actually speaking to a doctor about why it's so prevalent now. And we were discussing how environmental factors may be the root cause of it, but obviously more research needs to be done. Um, But just because you think that environmental factors is the reason for your mother's breast cancer diagnosis doesn't mean that you shouldn't take the action and go get screened. You know, Um, I think that it's there's twofold in terms of the relationship with the doctors. It's you need to, as the patient, you need to take action and you need to be willing to work with your doctor to improve your health. Um, you can't be passive also and just wait for the doctor to, to I guess, guide you on exactly what what you want them to do because they can't read your mind.
0: <laughs> no, it's so true. And let's talk a little bit more about that because I think there are, and I definitely don't know enough about this specifically with breast cancer, but I have read different things saying that breast cancer, it's an estrogenic cancer. And a lot of times, you know, excess estrogen or xenoestrogens can be contributing factors. Again, obviously more research is needed, but can you talk about other than, um, you know, having certain quote unquote cancer genes, maybe you could even explain that. What are the risk factors for developing breast cancer?
1: So I think the main, obviously the genes that we talk about, you have the BRCA gene, BRCA1 and BRCA2, then there's check mutations, um, ATM mutations. There's a lot of different mutations um, that can increase your risk for breast cancer. And it's not only breast cancer, it, it contributes to many other cancers, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, certain skin cancers. So when you're high risk and have one of those genes, it's important to not only focus on just, I guess, the women cancers, but really on any type of these cancers that can be associated with the gene. That being said, I think what people don't understand also is that the gene can come from your mom or your dad. You know, like just because it's a woman cancer that you're high risk for it doesn't mean your dad can't carry the gene. So it's important to really speak to both of your parents or your grandparents to ask if there were any cancers in the family, um, not only breasts, even colon, um, skin cancer, stomach cancer, pancreatic cancer, to really get the root of, of the history. Um, other other things that can make you high risk is just having a close relative who had cancer at a young age. Doesn't need to be that they have the gene. Um, being an Ashkenazi Jewish descent obviously makes you high risk. It's really unfortunate. I think it's like one in forty women carry. I
0: didn't know that was obvious. Is it so much higher in Ashkenazi Jews?
1: Yes, Ashkenazi Jews and African American women. It's very high risk. To, you're very wow. high. Wow,
0: I didn't know that. Um, in terms of the genes. Obviously, talking to your family will be helpful anyways, but are those things that you recommend people do genetic testing for? Can you look for those things in a blood test?
1: Yes. So basically what happens is if you are concerned, I actually did a panel among young women. Um, It was like young Jewish women who didn't really know much about, um, I guess, like women cancers. Um, And I think that's why it's really important to go into the community and just like talk about this because people just don't know.
0: Yeah, I think I'm pretty plugged into the health world, but when it comes to cancer, I don't feel like especially young women, 20s and 30s, we're not thinking about this. Maybe we're thinking more about fertility. We're thinking more about, you know, how to manage our health through pregnancy and postpartum. I don't think most people are thinking about cancer. So talk to us, talk to our audience as if we don't know a lot because I don't think most people do.
1: No, for sure. And unfortunately it is something that that comes about. I I hope it's not too common, but you do see a younger woman um, with cancer and it could be because of this gene. It could be because of the familial history. Um, and it's really, really sad, and it's really, really hard on the community, and that's why I think it's so important um, to do this advocacy. So, basically, let's say you have, you, you feel like you are high risk for a cancer gene, whether it's because of of your familial health history, um, or just because you have a question and you want to go to the doctor and you want to ask them, should I get tested for this gene? That's totally fair. Um, because even if you don't have a history of cancer, you can still be high risk for cancer, or you could still carry one of those genes. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So that's something you would ask your primary care physician. This is also what you were talking about with preventative plans. It's looking at things like this early. So let's say someone is in their twenties or thirties, they are positive for one of those genes that's associated with cancer. What are other steps they would take? Like, does that mean they should start doing mammograms? Is that Different even than what you were talking about before? Is that like a breast MRI? I don't even know what a mammogram is. I just, all I know about it is like what I've seen on TV shows of women complaining that it really hurts and it squeezes your breast. So even just like start with the basics. What would someone do if they do feel like they're high risk?
1: So if they're high risk, they get tested for the gene. It's just a blood test, and then a genetic counselor will call you and tell you the results. If you're negative for the result, result, you're just entering the regular population and you'll continue screening with them. Screening guidelines for the regular population, um, it's like starting mammograms when you're 40. A mammogram is a machine and you basically put your breast into it and it squishes it um, down and really looking for like any um, abnormalities or anything that may look Um, I guess, suspicious for cancer. Um, And after that, you move forward um, to see you might need uh, an MRI with a a needle biopsy to just see what the tissue is, or an ultrasound guided needle biopsy, um, depending on who your doctor is and what the guidelines are. If you are positive for a gene, depending on your age, you're going to start very close screening and prevention. And this includes so an MRI, which is I, you, I'm, I hope everyone knows what an MRI is, but it's this big machine that you go into um, and you have to lie in there for about 15 minutes and they take a really, really good picture of your breast. And again, they're looking for like a density or anything that looks abnormal. Um, and then from whatever that they see, the guidelines will tell you what to do next, whether you need a biopsy, an ultrasound or something further to look at the abnormality. Um, so every six months you'll switch up between an ultrasound, which is really non-invasive. It's not scary. You're just taking a probe that you do take on your stomach when you're pregnant, or if you have like a kidney stone and they're looking at the stone in your, on your side, um, and they take a probe and they're just going to look at your breast, um, to see if anything looks, I guess, quote unquote, suspicious or weird. Um, so this is going to start at the age of 30 and we'll continue on with you. Other things that you can consider if you are high risk for the gene is you can talk about family planning with your doctor. You can go to your doctor and say, hi, I have this gene, or my husband has this gene, or we both have a gene. Um, What do you recommend for us in terms of kids? Should we consider doing IVF and screening out the gene, Um, which is obviously conflicting, obviously a lot of mixed evidence on it. Yes, I will stop there. Tell me if you have any questions.
0: Yeah. So first of all, that was so helpful because again, I think... This is something a lot of people don't know about, but I want to go more into what you're talking about with family planning, because I think the way a lot of people think of genetics is like, oh, you have this gene. That means that you will have X consequence, whether it's a a gene that codes for diabetes or a gene that codes for breast cancer. And it's not exactly like that, Um, at least for these things that we're talking about. There are certain genes that will for sure mean that you have a certain outcome like I'm thinking, you know, sickle cell anemia or something like that, where there's a very specific genetic mutation that results in a very specific genetic disease. And it's not like, well, maybe the risks, the odds, it's just like, no, this is what's gonna happen. But let's say with these genes that put someone at higher risk for breast cancer. So can you explain, let's say, if one or both parents has it, why might they want to consider something like IVF? What, what could the potential benefit of that be?
1: So I it's a great question. I think coming from, so I'm Jewish Ashkenazi, which means I come from a specific, I guess, line of people. I don't, Lauren, explain, explain what Jewish Ashkenazi is.
0: It's, it's a group of people that come from like a specific Eastern European, or maybe it's Eastern and Western European. We should probably both know this more, but European Jewry. So, you know, we're dealing with a specific population in terms of the genetics. We're all For the most part, most of us haven't branched out that much. We intermarry (laughs) within the Ashkenazi Jewish population. So it's a lot of similar genetic material within that population.
1: So we're what we call, we could be considered consiguous, which means like we're like intermarrying so a lot of Jewish Ashkenazi people, before they get married, they get tested for um, these specific diseases, which are autosomal recessive, which means that if one mom ma- parent carries one gene and another parent carries another gene, then it's much more likely that their child will carry that gene. And so these are things like Tay-Sachs, right? That people get tested for? Okay. Yeah. So this is what we're getting tested, I guess, with like Dori Ashurim, if people are familiar with that, or J-Screen it's very important. I'll say that now. It's very important. If uh, you're worried, whether you're not of Jewish Ashkenazi descent, but if you're worried that your family carries this a gene like this, um, I would get tested before you get married or before you're considering having a child, because then you will have that knowledge that you, can, um, that you have this gene that you may um, transfer it down to your children and that you can make that educated decision with your doctor to do IVF and screen out that gene and save you from a lot of, I guess, difficulties in the future. Um, so with BRCA or with an autosomal dominant gene, such as BRCA, check ATM, these are genes that if one parent carries it, if your child is carrying it, they will have that, I guess, mutation. Um, whereas for recessive, if you have one parent who has it and they're transferring it to their child, um, the child will carry it, but they won't have the mutation. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Meaning, if it's recessive, the kid needs to get a copy of that gene from both parents to express the disease. And if it's not, um, you know, even just having a copy from one parent, it raises their risk. Is that correct? Exactly. It means that they have it.
1: Um, so when you're making these so they're a carrier. That's like it, right term. yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're a carrier if it's recessive and one, and and basically they have one allele, like they have one copy of it, then they're a carrier. But if it's dominant and they're carrying it, that means they basically have it. Does that make that, I hope that explains it further.
0: Yeah. And so I know I've actually worked with people who are going through the IVF process because of this. They don't necessarily have a fertility issue, but there's some sort of genetic reason that they either have a recessive uh, genetic disorder, someone's a carrier for something like that, or both are carriers. um, And they want to do IVF because what you could do with IVF is once the embryo, once the egg is fertilized and you have an embryo, they can go in and look at the genetic cop, the, the DNA coding in that embryo. And they can say, oh, this embryo that we have you know, this fertilized egg does have a copy of BRCA or this one doesn't. And then you can make choices of if you want to implant the one that doesn't carry that gene. So this is how it could be different for someone who is considering doing something like IVF. If you are a carrier, you have a familial history. It's one thing that I would say is, again, obviously nothing's a guarantee, but it can potentially reduce the risk for the child, right?
1: Yes, a hundred percent. And I think. Listen it's so it's it's definitely a conflicting decision um it's not something to be taken lightly i think the reason why i brought up the autosomal recessive was because when you're doing that before you get married and it's it's you're doing it for these lethal g- diseases like Tay-Sachs or something that your child is going to be born sick Um, The decision might be easier for you to decide to do IVF, but when you have genes that make you high risk for cancer, and you're not automatically looking at this person and you're saying, "Oh my god, they're so sick. Why would they do the IVF?" Um, It it gets a little more gray. Um, So it's definitely something to bring to your doctor and speak about. And what I will say is that there are people who have these high risk cancer genes all around you, um, and they are contributing members to society, and it's just it's not something to be taken lightly, but it's also something completely understandable if it's what you want to go through. Um, And if it's what you want, your. it's all about what you want your family to look like. And I, I think that's just an important point to make.
0: Yeah, that is so important. So thank you for adding that. I want to ask you just a little bit now about how you're, you know, you're in your rotations and you're practicing and starting to see patients. Do you feel like your experience watching your mom go through? And I don't know if we mentioned this. I obviously, I know you in real life. I know your mom. Um, and thank God she is like on the other side and healthy and got through it. So can you tell us a little bit about how that experience of you watching your mom go through all of this, how does it affect you and the way that you show up with your patients? Like, do you think about it on a day-to-day basis? Do you feel like it's changed your experience or compared to other doctors who maybe didn't have that experience, how does it play out for you?
1: Oh, 100%. I do think about it a lot. My mom is my best friend. So I speak to her all the time. Like if I turn on my phone and I don't have a text or a phone call from my mom, I get sad and I call her and I say, mom, you didn't call me. I don't call her in the hospital. I call her when I'm on my way home. Um, But I also get sad when my husband doesn't text me, but he's also in residency. So he's never on his phone. Um, But I do think that watching someone super close to you, like your mother, it could be your mom, your aunt, your grandma, your sibling, like really anybody who's suffering. I think that's something that really changes you. I think for me, I'm what they call like an empath. Um, I feel emotions like super strongly. Like I was once in the room with a patient and she was talking about, she was 45 years old. She had kidney failure. She had a heart attack already and she had children. And I felt so strongly, but like, so strongly for this woman. I felt so horrible for her and I fainted. Oh my gosh. And I'm so scared for it to happen to me again, like in the hospital, like while I'm actually doing something important versus shadowing as a medical student. Um, and so I'm really trying to work and balance my emotions versus like being the the, the person in charge and being the strong person for the patient. Because I, I do think it's it's a balance that you need to have. And I'm sure you feel it all the time. Like when you're talking to clients who are struggling and and you feel for them, but you also know like you can help them, but you have to be that strong person for them to help them.
0: It's so interesting you say that because I hear a lot of people who define, who define themselves as an empath. And I'm like, that's totally not me because I have a very, for better, for worse, I'm very clearly able to separate what other people are feeling from what I'm feeling, almost to a fault sometimes where like I can go numb when other people are talking about really painful things. And I actually found myself doing this a lot when i was pregnant and i would have calls literally every day with potential clients telling me about their fertility struggles and miscarriages i think it's almost like a a self defense mechanism i i don't feel anything not that i don't feel bad for them but it's more of like an intellectual experience than truly feeling in my body sadness for them or like i don't i don't take their pain into my body because i feel like i wouldn't be able to handle it and i think again, for better or for worse, that's just how I deal with it a lot. And I actually like ended up working with someone to help me integrate some of my feelings because I felt like I was showing up numbly in a little bit of my work. It was a very like, interesting, weird experience that I went through when I started my work. Um, but I think that's so interesting because I've also read a bunch of these doctor books. I love the doctor books. I don't know if you've ever read When Breath Becomes Air, where these doctors talking about you know brain surgeons and neurosurgeons and heart surgeons who literally have patients who die on the operating table. And then they have to deliver the news to the family and how it affects you when you have to do things like that on a regular basis. And I think it's so helpful to just hear the human side from someone who is going to become a doctor that like, it really does affect you when you hear someone going through that. It's just it's okay. so heavy. I think, I
1: think that I I will get stronger during res, I guess, like, I don't want to say hardened, but like stronger as I see more during my training. But I do want to h- hang on to my emotional side just because I think that will make the difference um, so much more difference for the patient when they're meeting with me. But at the same time, it's funny how you bring up the neurosurgeons because like when you're in surgery, like the patient is so scared, you know, like, they're like shaking before surgery and like, as the medical student, like last year and the year before that, like I'll go, I would hold their hand. I would ask them if they need anything. I'd put another blanket on them because I still saw them as a human, but then we roll them into surgery. We, they go to sleep and we really cover them up. All we want to do is expose that one site that we are operating on. And they really aren't human to us at that point. They really are a goal for us to fix them. We want to fix them. So we can't see the emotional side in order to, I guess, put all of our energy into just fixing what's broken. And I think that, I mean, that's just from my experience, what I thought, I I think that's, that's also really important to just like be able to like focus on what the problem is and fix it instead of getting all the emotions clouding our judgment.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, I always tell people, you know, it's not about perfection. It's just about doing the best you can, but that's not true when you're a neurosurgeon or a heart surgeon or any kind of surgeon, because you have a lot less room for error. And you do, you need to be laser focused, obviously on what you're doing. It could be the difference of life and death for someone. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, And I just, I think it's so interesting to hear how it plays out. And I, I do think just knowing you, I think it's going to be something that you bring into your work and are able to humanize it and just be really empathetic to your patients. Because I've also heard things like that, where I mean I remember with my own diagnosis when I was diagnosed with PCOS it was very matter of fact and the doctor was like okay we're looking at your ultrasounds and your blood work you have PCOS here are the options this is what we can do and my head was spinning I was like what are you talking about like I don't have I've never had anything I've never gone to a doctor more in my life than I have in this time period in my life and it was so much to wrap my head around and then they started talking about the fertility treatments and showing me needles and I I'm not good with needles so I was about to faint just from that and I just felt like, whatever, I didn't, that doctor and me were not the best match for a lot of reasons. But I felt like that was also, I was just kind of another case to him. And I wasn't a full on person in front of him. And I feel feel like especially dealing with women's health issues. I mean, women are sensitive about a lot of things. And I think anyone gets sensitive when it comes to their health. So I know that you're going to bring in that empathic piece when you are seeing patients.
1: No, a hundred percent. And I'm sorry you had that experience. And I, I think, what you could take from being a patient um, yourself and then speaking with other people is that you recognize that suddenly when someone gives you a diagnosis, like you become a patient, whether that diagnosis is like hypothyroidism, like diabetes or PCOS or, or something even bigger like cancer. Like once you hear that you have something, you become a patient and your mind becomes mush. And then you're everyone's asking you, what did the doctor say? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> so like my biggest advice in that is Write down all of your questions before you go to the doctor, have a note on your phone that's like always open because if you have a question in the middle that pops into your head in the middle of the night, write it down because when you go to the doctor, you become a patient and you forget everything that you were going to say. Um, also recommending is bringing someone to the doctor. If it's not like your partner could be your mom, it could be your friend, but really somebody who's there to have another type of mind. Like that's not in the patient mindset and can ask questions for you because sometimes like I'm sitting there, like when I was pregnant, also I was sitting there and my husband like asked an important question. Like, who do we call when risky goes into labor? And I'm like, that's a good question. I didn't think about that. Um, and I, I, I think it's something it's something good to point out, like I love when patients bring someone with them, and that person is advocating for them too.
0: That is such a good tip, and I'll tell you, I had a pregnancy during the pandemic and a pregnancy not during the pandemic, and the one during the pandemic, I wasn't allowed to bring anyone and I do think that was whatever it was probably for a lot of reasons I was high risk and there was a lot going on in the country with the pandemic, but I wasn't able to bring anyone to my appointments. And I was exactly that. I was this high-risk patient. I couldn't understand what was going on. I went into complete fight or flight mode. I literally left every appointment in heaving sobs. Like Everyone was asking me. It was scary. They're like, oh my God, are you okay? Is your baby okay? And the baby was okay, but I was so like not put together. And I know it would have been different had I been able to go with my husband, but whatever those those were the rules during that crazy time. And it is something that was so different second time around. He came with me to most of my appointments. And I also, am not always the best in the moment at asking the questions because you have so much else going on, especially if there are these more, um, I don't know, vulnerable appointments, even with ultrasounds, I always feel like a little weird about it. And they're just like going up in there. So it is. it is, it's hard to be thinking logistically. And it's helpful when you have someone else who's like, wait, I'm ready to ask all the questions, even basic things like, who should I call when she goes into labor?
1: a oh, 100%. And I'm sorry you had that experience. It's, it's really, really hard when a patient is alone and has no one advocating for them. Um, and really, no one should go through it alone. Sometimes there is no choice, but like when there's a pandemic in the country, but I'm glad the second time around was a much better experience for you.
0: Yeah. Thank God. And speaking of support, because I know you also have done a lot with Sharsha, you've obviously written this book that's helpful and supportive for people. You're going to be supporting people in a totally different way um, when you finish residency. But for someone who is concerned, I would say both with like general women's health and specifically with cancer and breast cancer, what are some resources that you feel like are really good for those people to turn to for information and or for support? So I think that's a great question. Um I think something that's really important to point out is that ShareShare
1: has a peer support network. Um which means that they set up people um with other women with similar experiences, similar stories and I guess like a similar diagnosis um, and they set them up to become peer supporters. Um, and you can really call your peer supporter for anything that you need. So obviously I'm a peer supporter. I speak to young women, I guess through SureShare, but also I guess through my own time now, um, after publishing my book, a lot of people reached out to me, um, who were high risk for cancer or whose mother had cancer a long time ago and they never spoke about it. Um, so I think, wow yeah, I, it's just, it's it's really crazy how many people it affects. And I think it's important to talk about because it affects you, it affects your life and you shouldn't you should know that you aren't alone and there are other people out there. But if you're scared, if you're nervous, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, hey, my grandfather had cancer. Let me see if I should do something about it. And you don't wanna to go to a doctor right away, reach out to these organizations. They'll put you in touch with somebody who may have a similar story and this person could help guide you also sure. It has genetic counselors. Um, so they can really take care of that part for you, um, in terms of like getting screened, um, and then point you in the right direction. Um, another place you can go is to your primary care doctor, speak to them about, um, your health history and about your fears and see what type of plan you can come up together. And then lastly, you can buy my book <laughs> and you could see what a child may be going through. Um, when their mother or their loved one is diagnosed with cancer um, or maybe your friend or somebody that you know is going through it and you want to relate more to them. Um, that's that There are resources like my book out there also that um, you can get your hands on and that it may help you through that experience.
0: Okay. That's amazing. And just another question that kind of popped into my head while you were talking about that. If someone is high risk, I've heard, you know, a lot of times when people are high risk, they will either be told to consider or opt to get a double mastectomy. So can you just talk about what that is? Because I know that's something you also talk about in the book. um, And like, what considerations are there? How much does that lower your risk? Let's say someone is high risk. I don't know, how worth it would it be for them to go through that? I know it's obviously not an easy, small decision, but can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, for sure. Um, So my mom got a double mastectomy. Um,
1: She was diagnosed with breast cancer at 34, and she opted in for a double mastectomy, which means she removed both breasts. Um, And I'll just like slightly go through that process. Um, Whether you have cancer. When you have cancer, it could be a little different because you may have treatment in terms of like chemotherapy or radiation treatment going with this. But if you opt in for a preventative mastectomy because you're high risk for cancer, um, it sort of goes like this. Um, you go in for your first surgery, um, which removes both your breasts. You remove all of your breast tissue. And basically, it takes your risk of breast cancer. I guess if you have BRCA, it's like 80 to 90% risk of getting cancer in your lifetime. Um, and it decreases it down to about 1%. Um, Wow. There's different methods to the surgery. You can go straight from no breast tissue and in that same surgery, put in implants. Um, You can go um, straight to tissue expanders, which is basically something that stretches your skin. And then a couple of months later, you can get the implants. So that gives you a little time to heal. It's something that you decide with your doctor. And now they're doing something called a deep flap, which they take your stomach fat and they put it into your breasts. So you won't have um, implants. Um, And I think that's so interesting now because breast implant illness, it's not something I know so much about, but I know- I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, it's like a hot topic now. Yes. Um, I I see like a lot of influencers like removing their implants now. And it's so funny because I look at my mom who has implants and I'm like, mom, do you have breast implant illness? And she's like, No, Rifki. I don't even know what that is. So I don't know. Like I I know it's a real thing, and like obviously, what every woman feels is so valid. But there are women out there who need breast implants because like they had these
0: mastectomies because they had cancer. So like, what are we gonna do? So I'm so glad you brought that up because I was debating should I ask about the breast implant illness stuff. I've also I've seen a lot of people who have decided to take out their implants. I would say this is definitely not something that comes up a lot in the people I work with. Just in my community in this space. It's not something I'm seeing commonly. Um, but people that are like a lot of LA people and a lot of celebrities who have gotten implants where it's just much more common to do that. And many who have done it for cosmetic or aesthetic reasons, not for cancer prevention are opting to take them out because they're like, it's, it's not natural. It's not holistic. I feel like I'm more inflamed because of it. I feel like it's causing these rashes or skin issues, whatever. Um, and I've heard really interesting stories from women who felt like they were literally near death and they had so much inflammation or the implants had like infections or had gotten moldy or all these crazy things. Um, but I love the way that you're presenting it. And it's like, listen, it really is about what's happening to you and what's working for you or not working for you because it's not a simple thing as a woman to do it. And I'm sure it affects, let's say you have children in the future. It would affect your ability to breastfeed. I'm guessing like there's a lot of considerations to take in, and I think as always, you know, it's, it's an individual choice. You have to talk to your doctor. You have to think through all these different considerations, but thank you for explaining it. Cause I think that's also just something, again, people are age in their twenties and thirties. We're not talking about, we're not thinking about
1: hundred percent. And I think, well, there's one, also another option. I'm sure I missed a couple options, but you can also go flat. There are women who just choose to go flat. It's called like a flat aesthetic closure. And I think it's a beautiful idea. I follow a couple of women who who've done that on Instagram and the way that they like, I guess, portray their body on the app. It's just, they seem so proud of themselves because these are young women who did it preventatively and decided to go flat. And I think it's so beautiful that they're, they look at their scars and they're proud of them because this is like an empowering decision. This is something that you decide to do because you don't want to have cancer. And obviously it's so personal. That's why I call it a personal preventative treatment plan because it's something that needs to work with you, with your, I guess, with um, your family planning and with your partner and I guess like your entire life, like what you want to do. And you have to spend a couple of months recovering in bed, Um, not months, weeks, and then like whatever, you take your time. Um, But it's something that is really so personal and you, you make that decision with your doctor and with your family.
0: Yeah, it's so true. And it's funny because I'll just say as your friend, I read the book and I, I'm trying to even remember when I met you. It must've been probably around this time. I think I started going to camp after the summer after fifth grade. And this all happened to you in fifth grade. But I remember, it's funny when the book came out, I'll tell you off air, but a bunch of people were like, oh my God, it's so crazy. I remember at Rifki's Bat Mitzvah, her mom speaking. I I literally remember it like it was yesterday. And your mom was talking about, how you were there for her through the cancer and how you were always like asking her if she needed food and bringing her things and how you really had to almost step into that role as a really young kid and like watch out for your younger sister and watch out for your brother. And it's funny because also I can't remember a single thing from my bot mitzvah. I don't remember any other person's mom's bot mitzvah speech. Like I don't remember any of it, but so many people that I've spoken to um, since your book came out are like, oh, of course I remember that speech. It was just there was something about it. I don't know what stuck in our minds 15, 16 years later. And it was just so clear how this is an experience. I mean, thank God your mom is healthy now, but it affects families in such an intense way. And it's something that it sounds like there's so much we could be doing for prevention, which is so, it's so worthwhile because obviously cancer is it's serious. So I appreciate so much that you've brought a lot of light to this subject, especially for people like me who maybe I don't think I'd have a family history and it's not something I've thought a lot about. And as someone who I would say is very interested in health and wellness, like it's just not an area that I've really dipped into and thought about, but it's given me so much to think about. So I'm sure there's a lot of people like me out there who don't even feel like this is necessarily so relevant to them or never thought about it, but now they have so much more information to think about prevention for the future.
1: 100%. And prevention means so much more than like cancer screening. um, Because just for like regular people going to the doctor, we're going to screen you for hypertension, which is high blood pressure. We're going to screen you for diabetes, um, which comes from elevated blood glucose. Like there's just so much that we can offer and we just have to work together. (laughs) Patients and doctors, they just have to work together. Um, and show up for your doctor so your doctor can show up for you. And I'm trying to think about your bat mitzvah also because I was there.
0: <laughs> I know I was at your bat mitzvah. I'm sure you don't remember anything because there was no speech like that, which is fine. It's all good. It was actually, my bat mitzvah
1: was like a year after my mom's, um, I think, diagnosis, basically. And we made it like a party of life. Uh, it was called like a simchat hodaah. So we were really thankful that she was okay. She said it was her first blowout since um, she her hair grew back after the chemotherapy.
0: Oh my gosh. And I will just say for anyone who's going to read the book, cause you should all get the book and read it. There are things that are fictionalized, but so much of it is true. And the way you talk about your mom, it was so fun to read it. Cause you talk about her cooking. And I was like, I honestly feel like Esther Zidman's cooking was a part of my childhood. I could, uh, those wontons, the zebra cookies, like, you know, before this was before, you know, Lauren Allen nutrition days, maybe, maybe this is why Lauren Allen got to where she was, but those, Oh my God, your mom's the best cook. And she really is like always doing things for other people. And she was just the mom who would go so out of her way for her kids. And like, none of that is fictionalized and you write about it so beautifully, but I could just, even as someone, I didn't grow up in the same neighborhood as you, but like just going to your house randomly as camp friends. It's so everything you write about your mom was so true. And it's, it's an amazing book. And I think it's amazing, especially for kids who are in a similar situation. Um, So Also, let me add Rifki has very generously offered to do a signed book giveaway, which is so much fun. So when this episode is out, we're going to post about it on Instagram. You can sign up for the giveaway there because that's just the most generous, most exciting thing ever. And Rifki, tell everybody where they could find you, hear more about everything that you're sharing with women's health, with preventative health in general, and follow your journey through residency. Oh, for sure. I have to say, when you came out that you were a sugar addict,
1: I felt so bad because I sat on the porch in camp with you eating um, what are they called? Crinkle cookies, which is like a brown cookie with sugar.
0: I know you would never eat that now. Um, but it's, I know I'm, I'm partly to be, like, you sent me the recipe. I asked you when I got married, can I have that recipe? There's like three cups of margarine or something. It's crazy. That's why I they're so bake. good.
1: I don't bake. It's one thing that I just like, don't do. So I really, when I, the one time I make cookies and I'm like, really a whole stick of margarine? Like, you want me to put this whole stick in? Um, so yeah. But Listen, the- I enjoyed everyone. I don't regret it. <laughs> I'm glad you had enough for your whole lifetime. So we're good. I did But yeah, so if you want, I I think what's important here is you are not alone. If you are nervous about yourself, if you have an inkling that this, what we spoke about today relates to you, reach out. You can reach out to me on Instagram. My handle is Rifki Stein, um, which is my married name, Um, and reach out. You are not alone. There's no reason to struggle through this alone. And you have amazing champions here um, who are rooting for you to be healthy in all areas of your life. Um and yeah I'm very excited to give out my book to some to some lucky winner out there. I can't
0: wait. Okay, Ricky, this was amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me.